You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I still am baffled how he, you know, was able to raise a family, write several books, lead a major movement, and still make such an enormous contribution to humankind. Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, Dexter Scott King. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States. Now, Dexter Scott King was just seven years old in 1968 when his father was assassinated, but his memories of his father remain sharp and crisp and vivid. And some of those personal recollections may actually contrast with the public image of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, in 2003, at the age of 42, Dexter Scott King wrote a memoir called Growing Up King. And that's when I had a chance to meet him. So here now, from 2003, Dexter Scott King. Well, you know, it was a good time for me to reflect on my life, uh, wanting to give people an intimate and candid look um, at a very prominent family growing up in America, certainly in a tumultuous time, that being the 60s, and giving um, a more intimate look at a man who was seen being very serious in public, that of my father, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., but in private, he was a real fun-loving family man. So I wanted to share some of those intimate moments so that people could see another side of the very public man. He sounds like he must have been a great dad. He was a great dad. Uh, Didn't have a lot of time with him, but we had intimate time and family time. So when we were together, we would play. I mean, that's the thing people don't really know about him is that he was almost the opposite uh, of what you saw in public because in his family time, he really sought refuge and and really would unwind and let his hair down, so to speak. So I I really saw him more as a playmate than as a, a dad. He was very fun. He was a great compartmentalizer. Yes, and and also uh, a sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor. This is what I've heard from many of his associates over the years who have written books, and and they've said that there's a whole side to him that we never saw. That's right. That's right. Wow. But now you you were a very, you were a small boy when he left us. I was seven years of age, but I have a vivid memory of those experiences. It's really almost as if it was yesterday. It's, I, I will always cherish those memories, riding bicycles together, uh, going swimming. He was an excellent swimmer, actually taught me to swim, uh, how to swim at a very young age. He would take us to the YMCA, and we would ride bicycles. We would play ball. Uh, all of the things that he, I think, saw as being critical and crucial because he was away from home so much that when he was at home, he wanted to make sure his kids, you know, really got the best of him. Now, when I first got your book and I saw the title Growing Up King, my first reaction was it it couldn't have been easy. No, you know, it was, I I would say, a two-sided sword, so to speak. Um, There were many burdens, certainly, in that there were so many expectations placed upon us, primarily from the outside. Mm -hmm. But internally, because of the very strong influences and support that our parents gave us, there were many blessings. And I would say the blessings greatly outweighed the burdens because our, our parents did not place those expectations on us. So that always helps when you're dealing with external pressures. 
But still, you're talking about the kinds of things. I mean, because you were still in school and you were, you were right. walking the halls of, and, and you, you write in here in a very low key kind of way. But I can imagine what it must have felt like to be walking down the hall and people are pointing and whispering and sometimes not even whispering, saying things out loud and, and asking you to prove you're not really king. You're not, you know, you know, <laughs> what a horrible thing that must have been to endure day after day. It was very confusing to have my classmates or schoolmates question, was I really the son of Martin Luther King? And the fact that in in many instances, they, I mean, they would place bets because one would say, that's him, and the other would say, no, it's not. And once they confronted me and said, you know, you aren't him. And I said, why not? And they said, because if you were him, you wouldn't be here with us. And that really confused me for a long time because my father was certainly a very grassroots person. He insisted that we uh, live in the community in which we worked. So uh, he felt it was imperative that we have a normal uh, upbringing. And it's interesting that while we tried to be that way. Others would not allow us to be that way. And it was it was very confusing as an adolescent because certainly I wanted to blend in and be accepted like every other adolescent. And yet it was difficult, not with everyone. I mean, there were certainly, uh, again, many more people were embracing than not. But I think, and I don't even think the ones who were not, I don't think it was... Uh, Intentional. It was more they didn't know how to act or react. Uh It was just more of a issue of how do we treat this person? Do we put him or place him on a pedestal, or do we bring him down to earth? And I tell another story about uh, an experience with the football team when I was uh, started uh, my first year with the junior varsity, and then at the end of the season, the coach really took a liking to me and uh, brought me up to the varsity. And the three biggest guys on the team, I guess, felt they were going to try me out or initiate me the first day uh, in practice. So I think once they saw I was human and down to earth and I could hold my own, <laughs> I, I garnered that respect. So there, there were many experiences of growing up that were also very fun. I, I have to say that part of my life was so um, enjoyable because I was allowed to grow up. Mm-hmm. But even uh, coming back to what you were saying a moment ago, even if there are not pressures from within your family, there are nevertheless societal pressures. People expect certain things of you, don't they? They do. They really do. And I remember as a child being told at church, for instance, I want you to be just like your father. I want you to be a minister. Now, I never, nor did my brother ever enter the ministry. And I recall my grandfather certainly wanting us to pursue that because he came from many generations or a few generations of of Baptist preachers. And I come from, I guess, five generations. So there was this real pressure there. But my grandfather was so supportive in the sense that he would laugh. We had a running joke. He would ask me, have you heard the call yet? And I would say, no, sir. But I think occasionally I hear hear a whisper and he would just (laughs) crack up. (laughs) So you know, the reality is that uh, my sister, Bernice, became the minister, mm-hmm. and my brother and I did not, but yet we feel we have pursued my father's legacy in other ministries and carrying on his his work and legacy in other areas. And I think that's really uh, apropos, because today there are many ways uh, to 
get a message out or communicate a message. And I think my grandfather, because he said, listen, you know, you should never do anything particularly that kind of sacred calling unless you really hear the call. Mm -hmm. Don't do it because somebody expects you to do Mm -hmm. it. And I, I appreciated the fact that he gave us that support. And if you hadn't heard the call genuinely and had tried that, people would constantly be comparing That's you right. with your father and say, eh, he's just not quite there, or, or he's, he's just so different. That's right. You know, it's a no-win yeah, situation. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> so, but again, carrying on a, a legacy as rich as your father's must be both at, at simultaneously a rich blessing, but also a very serious burden. Yes, the for the longest time, I was not really sure what my um, role should be in that regard, and it was really um, up. I, I would say into my early twenties, and there was a life-threatening, almost near-death experience uh, in that of a car accident where I was ejected from the vehicle, and really a miracle occurred because I walked away from that with. Uh, a sprained ankle and you know for that to have occurred and I remember my aunt Christine uh, my father's sister saying you know God is saving you for something and prior to that I really was not serious I mean I I was living a normal upbringing in the sense that I was enjoying life going through life not necessarily thinking about heavy weightiness in terms of responsibility and this burden of the king legacy but after that experience, something shook me and said, you know, you have more to do here. You you have a mission. You have a purpose. And from that day forward, I think I started really focusing in on this great legacy. And yes, uh, there were many burdens along the way. But also I found a, a real sense of commitment, purpose, and providence because my father, in a real sense, was a reluctant leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he went to Montgomery and headed the bus boycott, he was not really thinking. I mean, in fact, he knew, he did not know that was going, no one knew that was going to happen um, as destiny would have it or fate would have it. Um, he was prepared. And I think the reason he was chosen was because he wasn't seeking that role. It, it's almost as if the, the qualifications were that he was not trying to be at the forefront. He was actually self-effacing and a very humble person. And that, that was really the, 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 mm-hmm. the skill, the leadership skills uh, that were necessary at that time to, to lead such a, um, you know, an important movement. After the short break, what Dexter Scott King felt when he reached the age at which his father had died. back to my 2003 conversation with Dexter Scott King. Well, to the extent that all sons like would like to be like their fathers, or if, if you've got a father that you've always looked up to, I know sometimes I feel full. I, my dad was Marv Thompson, the insurance agent. Nobody's mm-hmm. ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. But I sometimes feel like I'm not even measuring up to that. I mean, are there times when you have self-doubts? At one time I did, but I don't anymore because... Again, I I go back to my father's words, my mother's words growing up, of really just being your best self. And, you know, my father used to 
talk about no matter what you do, whatever your lot in life is, just be your best self. If you're a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper (laughs) so that no one else can, you know, really compare. And that's really the charge I've taken to heart is to simply just be Dexter. And I think he would be uh, certainly proud and, and happy that I have been true to that. Uh, we, we've had a very spiritual upbringing, which, which frankly sustained us in times of tragedy and trauma. So once I understood that that reinforcement was there, it was a lot easier for me to let it go, to not try to think about it in terms of, do I have to live up to what he accomplished? Because frankly, I believe he was a man of God and had a mission, a purpose at at his time. And I don't know that anyone else uh, will come along anytime soon. You know, as he used to say, a leader like uh, that, and he was referring to someone else, uh, only comes along once in a millennium. And, you know, you just, you, you never know. You never know where it's going to come from. As I said, he was, uh, I always say, rather, he's an ordinary man who did extraordinary things. He he had a very loving and supportive home. I mean, I, I get a lot of lessons, not just from him, but as I said, my grandfather, his father, because everybody knows Martin Luther King Jr., but for there to, to have been a Martin Luther King Jr., there had to have been a Martin Luther King Sr. So, you know, where did he get his upbringing? And Alberta Williams King, his, his mother. So you have to look at the, it in totality. And I think it was that support that he had that enabled him, certainly, to be able to give to others, to be so mm-hmm. compassionate, to be uh, such a giving person and have so much warmth. He believed in service to others. Mm-hmm. Does, it, does it ever weigh on your mind that you have now lived longer than he got to? I, now that, when I got to my 39th birthday, and actually my 40th birthday, I said, you know, wow, you know, I, I'm older than he was when he when he died. And it, it really caused me to stop and think and reflect on my life. And really, am I, am I being true to my calling? So it's, it's really interesting that in 39 years, he was able to accomplish so much. It's, it's amazing to me. I still am baffled how he, you know, was able to raise a family, write or author several books, lead a major movement, and, and still make such an enormous contribution uh, contribution to humankind. That, that astounds me. He was, he was in the right place at the right time. He mm-hmm. knew, but you have to, not only when you're in the right place at the right time, you have to know how to seize the moment and do something with it and, and take the ball and run with it. And he knew how to do all those things. He did. Again, I don't think he knew, though. I, I really don't think he knew beforehand that that was his his destiny, so to speak. I think it was um, later that he had this premonition and understood that now he was doing it. You know, he had to make the best of it because initially he had flirted with becoming a doctor, a lawyer. But ultimately, I, I think his spiritual upbringing, because in a real sense, he had that pressure from his parents uh, being a minister. So he was not necessarily... Uh, sure that that's where he was going to head initially, but I believe it was um, certainly pro- providential and 
in the end, he was prepared. He was the, at the right place at the right time and had the right uh, tools to, you know, take on this very significant um, achievement. Now let me ask you, in, in terms of the living of your life, are the circumstances of your father's death, is that a closed book for you now? Or, or is that something that, that is still a part of your ongoing work? No, actually, it's uh, it's a closed book for me. Uh, my family, I think, was very fortunate to have really had an opportunity to find out what happened to our loved ones. Certainly, uh, my father's loss and, and tragedy uh, was considered a national tragedy of sorts. And yet for us, he was just dad. We we simply just wanted to know what happened to our, lo- our loved one. And we were never fully satisfied with the official story uh, behind his death, but we didn't have any real means or, or way to, to delve into it. And we were approached uh, in recent years with new evidence. And as a result of that, we were able to have embark upon a civil trial, a wrongful death uh, suit, that took place in December of 99 against one of the uh, co-conspirators, Lloyd Jowers. And I felt vindicated after that experience of hearing over 70 witnesses in a four-week-long trial uh, give what I feel was very um, moving and uh, compelling testimony Mm -hmm. and entered into the, the official record. And frankly, when the jury came back after less than two hours of of deliberation. And this was, of course, a jury of mixed or split down the middle, half white, half black, half male, half female, half young, half old. I mean, it it couldn't have been more balanced. And and I felt independent uh, jurors. Uh, When they came back in less than two hours with a a verdict saying there indeed was a conspiracy, uh, a governmental conspiracy uh, of, of federal, state, and local agencies, to assassinate my father, and and I think the key information that came out of that is that James Earl Ray was not the shooter, and for me and my family, that was really the the the, the final, uh, the culmination of this very uh, long journey to to have some closure and frankly be able to heal and move on to our with our lives because we were never interested in retributive justice. We mm-hmm. weren't looking to put people in jail or behind bars or, you know, do anything other than know the truth. As they say, the truth shall set you free. And we believe now that we are able to move on with our lives. And just before we close, I also wanted to touch on one other anecdote you referred to in the book, which is when you actually played your father in a in a, in a movie. Yes, um, had a very um, uplifting experience in the Rosa Parks uh, story and uh, starring Angela Bassett. And I had, you know, certainly a wonderful time, uh, primarily because everyone was so supportive. The mm-hmm. story itself uh, was was filmed on location in Montgomery. So there was a lot of uh, spirit uh, in the room, if you will, because of uh, people even who were there during uh, the bus boycott were actually sitting in the audience as extras. So, you know, being able to see some of my father's contemporaries and that kind of thing really uh, uplifted me and inspired me as I was doing this 
you know, this role. Now, now, let me ask you, were you just an actor at that point in front of cameras saying lines, or was there something more metaphysical going on? Did you almost feel somehow like maybe just for a moment, maybe you were back in the, the early 60s? I actually transformed myself back. I, I thought, what must it have been like when he was here in 19, really 55, oh, as yeah. a 26-year-old? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people forget how young... Uh, my father was when he started this movement. I mean, what were we all doing at 26? And, you know, here he was, you know, leading 50,000 people in, in the city of Montgomery. Uh, but I, I really felt a spiritual uh, connection with him at that time. I, I really stepped into the role and spiritually took on that dimension and something happened. I I was transformed. And it wasn't really me. It wasn't just me saying the words or the lines. It it was actually uh, a a spiritual experience taking over and metaphysical in the sense of connecting with his spirit at that time. Dexter Scott King is 60 years old now, and you can find easy Amazon links to his book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure to listen to my 1992 interview with his mother, Coretta Scott King. Martin was a person who believed that to be great is to serve and not have a million dollars in the bank. But it is to reach out and try to you know, help others and to improve the conditions of our society. And my 1994 interview with another King confidant and aide, former U.N. ambassador, former Atlanta mayor, Andrew Young. If you had told Martin Luther King after the speech on the march on Washington, what do you think of Andy Young being ambassador to the United Nations? He'd have laughed. And he would have said, well, if we can ever get the right to vote, maybe some of those things will happen. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a powerful voice in the African-American community, a powerful voice for women everywhere, the late author, Bell Hooks. If Bell Hooks were writing 16 frivolous novels, I don't think anyone would care. But when you write the kind of books that people tell you, this book changed my life, those books, I think, are often perceived as a threat. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.